You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Evil minds that plot destruction. Sorcerer of death construction. In the fields of bodies burning. Machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind Poisoning their brainwash minds Welcome to the Anarchist World this week Broadcast across Australia on the National Community Radio Satellite Listen to the Anarchist World this week Australia's sacred cow slaughterhouse Listen to analysis of local, national and international events. Listen to analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Right, here we are, the Anarchist World this week. We're back like that dog shit at the bottom of your shoe. You can't really get rid of us. The smell lingers forever. And that's what anarchism is about. No, it's not about dog shit at the bottom of the shoe. It's about ensuring that those who exercise power understand there are different ways of exercising power. You can centralise power, you can decentralise power. You can centralise wealth, you can decentralise wealth. Anarchism comes from the Greek, anarchos, without rulers. So the mission, you like that? Sounds almost religious. The mission of an anarchist is to create a society without rulers. What gives rulers the ability to determine the lives of billions of people? Inequalities in power and wealth. So what is the anarchist struggle based around? It's about it's about devolving power or sharing power and it's about holding wealth in common and using for the common good. A universal struggle will con- which will continue to the end of the human race. Whether we succeed or fail is irrelevant. What is relevant that the spark is there and it continues to burn irrespective of the type of societies that human beings create uh, in order to uh, survive. So I want to, there are a lot of good things about COVID-19. Yes, I know, you've fallen off your chair. Well, I think what COVID-19 has done, it's um, had people thinking not just in terms of protecting themselves and their families, not just in terms of vaccination, not just in terms of the science, but it's got people thinking in terms of the type of society we are. Because one thing we have learnt through COVID-19 is the current economic model, model based on private investment for private profit in Australia fails. Every time there is some type of emergency, it fails. Normally, if you've got a personal emergency, like you lose your job, you lose your livelihood, it's your problem. But it's a national issue. It becomes society's problem because everybody, in one way or another, is affected. And we see that with COVID-19 and the lockdowns and the economic consequences, the consequences as far as people's livelihoods are concerned, not just the health consequences. So it's good to hear that more and more people are now talking about a universal basic income. And I'd just like to remind people that when public interest before corporate interest was established uh, four to five years ago, 
when we had a number of congresses, our first and most important policy statement is the fact that this country needs a universal basic income. And there is one country in the world that is in the position to offer its citizens a universal basic income, it's Australia. So what is a universal basic income? Well, a universal basic income is that every person on, in, on Australian soil receives an income which will cover them for their basic necessities, shelter, food, social interaction, access, healthcare, education, and the list goes on and on. And I can hear you collapse on the floor thinking, well, you're going to bankrupt the nation, Joe. You're going to bankrupt the nation. Well, I'll talk about the philosophical basis behind a, a universal basic income and then we'll talk about how to finance it in the current economic circumstances. That's right, the current economic cir- circumstances. We don't see, need to see blood in the streets. And it's very simple. A universal basic income ensures we have a cohesive society. That is a society where everybody is included in the economic framework, where we can remove the current social security system. Now, when you say to me, but, 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 if somebody like Gina Reinhardt gets a universal basic income and somebody in social security benefit gets a universal basic income, that's not fair. Well, it's very simple. Obviously, everybody receives a universal basic income, but at tax time, if you earn more than that basic universal income on a sliding scale, the more you earn, the less you receive and the more goes back into the taxation system. So the taxation system then takes a central role in ensuring that those who don't need it pay it back through tax. Now what we do by introducing a universal basic income, we get rid of the massive bureaucracy which has been created around the social security system and those people can then be redeployed in more useful areas like pandemic protection. At the same time, what it does, it reduces greatly the level of poverty in the community and increases people's ability to utilise the services which are available in this society. So I can hear you say, well, Joe, it all sounds exceptionally wonderful, but how do you fund it? How do you fund it? How do you fund it? Well, you can fund it exceptionally simply, but it takes political will and it takes organisations like public interest before corporate interests and other organisations on the planet to push and ensure that this becomes policy and it becomes legislation. Because like every other social and political struggle, we need to start up the engine. Whether you use solar energy or gas or petrol, doesn't matter. But we need to start up that engine for change, that engine that we 
need a universal basic income to resolve many of the problems that we have in the society, like over 750,000 children living in poverty in this extraordinarily rich society to resolve these issues. So how do you fund it? Well, we saw the government go into debt to provide JobKeeper and JobSeeker and we're seeing a reintroduction of JobKeeper, JobSeeker to in a limited extent in the current New South Wales situation as they battle with the COVID-19 pandemic. So how do you fund it? Do you fund it by creating money out of nothing and buying bonds and paying it back at a later date? Do you fund it by the sovereign state actually creating its own currency and that has its own issues? Or do you fund it by looking at the current economic situation? I believe, no, not believe, I know, not believe, beliefs, nothing, I know that the best way to fund it is by ensuring that the leaners in our society, that's right, the leaners, not the normal people who are called leaners, those at the bottom end of the scale, but those leaners at the top end of the scale that use this country's friendly legislation as far as economics is concerned and that they start paying a little bit of tax. And I'll tell you one form. One form is a 1% stock market turnover tax. 1%. One miserable cent in every dollar Every time a stock market transaction occurs, and these days stock market transactions occur in the virtual world, so it's exceptionally easy for 1% to be siphoned off into government coffers. 1%, one cent in every dollar. We could raise anywhere between 60 to $120 billion per year to go towards funding a universal basic income. The second way to fund a universal basic income is to introduce a 1% turnover tax. 1% turnover tax. Every time something is bought, 1% goes into the coffers. Every time a company makes a dollar, 1% automatically goes into funding a universal basic income. That's two simple ways of raising almost enough capital to fund a universal basic income with minimal cost to the individuals. Minimal cost. That's one cent. If you've got a hundred cents, well, we don't have cents, but you, let's say you've got, you got, what, 20 five-cent pieces and one-fifth of one of those five-cent pieces went towards the funding of the universal basic income. Now, the third way is something which was uh, put forward before the public at the last federal election, but it was uh, voted down because of the hysteria and the misinformation and disinformation was the fact that we should stop giving money to shareholders. If you've got enough money to buy stocks and shares, 
even if it's in your superannuation, if you've got enough money, we don't need to give people stocks and shares franking credits, taxpayers' money to pay them for owning stocks and shares. So these are three ways, and you could almost raise $500 billion, which is half of the national economy currently. Almost half. $500 billion. Extraordinary. And you can fund a universal basic income and change the very nature of Australian society. And as I said before, one of the central planks of public interest before corporate interest has been the introduction of a universal basic income. And this is a policy which we introduced many years ago. Now, if you are interested in the concept of a universal basic income, I encourage you to join public interest before corporate interests. Go to the website, pipsy.net, P-I-B-C-I.net. Give us a call, leave a message on 0439 395 489. No point ringing and not leaving a message, 0439 395 489, or uh, write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Okay, so it's all very simple. It's a matter of political will and it's a matter of generating enough interest in the idea in the community. When I hear the Nobel Laureate, Mr Peter Doherty, talk about a universal basic income, what that means is that people are beginning to understand that cohesiveness is at the very heart of creating societies which function. And if a universal basic income reduces bureaucracy, ensures that those who don't pay tax legally these days pay a little bit of tax you know, for all the infrastructure they use in this country, which is uh, provided by the taxpayer, and that people in this country live, live a reasonable life irrespective of where they're born, who their parents are, their social circumstances, well, then isn't it about time that we as a society looked at this issue? This is not about revolution. This is about basic reform. Let's not forget that when pensions were introduced, you know, 60, 70 years ago, everybody thought the earth would come to an end. Well, it didn't. And when the basic wage was introduced at the beginning of the 20th century in this country in the harvester decision, the sunshine harvester decision, everybody thought the earth would come to an end. It didn't come to an end. It may come to an end because of uh, the climate emergency, but it's not going to come to an end when we redistribute wealth in a way which creates a cohesive society. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. You can access the podcast by going to 3cr.org.au. Now, this is home, National Homeless Week. You like that? A National Homeless Week. Now, there are many people in our society which make a killing out of homelessness. Many people in our society. It's their profession to look after the homeless and nobody is more has got their arms in the uh, treasury trough more than religious-based organisations which provide services, in inverted commas, for the homeless. Now, there is a very simple solution to homelessness. There is a very simple 
solution to the problem of people having shelter and not spending 30, 40, 50, 60% of their income on shelter. But unfortunately in this country, we have been running in the opposite direction. The public housing sector, which was created as a result of returned servicemen and women coming back after World War II and finding after they'd made these sacrifices that they were homeless and were living in tents in the MCG in Melbourne in their botanic gardens, this was the impetus impetus for the creation of the public housing sector, which we saw grow and grow in the 60s and 70s and the early parts of the 80s. But what we have today is the very political parties and organisations which supported the concept of public housing are now running the other way. And they're talking about privatising public housing. And they're not talking about privatising, and they're not using the privatisation word. They're using words like social housing. And we've seen the Victorian government, you know, be the leader in this gallop towards social housing, social housing, community housing, affordable housing. And what do they all have in common? The thing they have in common is they are privately owned, subsidised to a significant degree by state and federal governments, but privately owned, privately managed. The difference between public housing and privately owned housing, whether it's established by religious-based organisations or secular organisations, is the fact that public housing is state-owned, state-managed. And although there are many shortcomings in the public housing sector today, those shortcomings are directly linked That's right, they're directly linked to the fact that the public housing sector has been starved of funds. To give you an example, in 2018, when we camped on the steps of the Victorian Parliament House for 10 days before the state election on a public housing platform, we saw the state government concerned about losing some of its inner city seats to the Greens make a promise of building 1,000 new public housing units and homes. Three years later, what have they done? They haven't built one new public housing home. They've privatised and knocked down public housing units, turning them into private private public partnerships where 90% of those units belong to the private sector, giving away exceptionally expensive land to the private sector to build some substandard homes. And at the same time, we are seeing money flow into the social housing sector where the state government in Victoria stands up in hind legs and says, look at us, what wonderful people we are. We are going to build another 12,000 social housing homes. So we're going to give 12,000 homes to the private sector. What a load of garbage. Now, public housing has profound economic uh, impact And it's unfortunate that in the 21st century, in 2021, that everybody thinks that everything that is publicly owned, that is owned by the community, is somehow inferior to what is provided by the private sector. So how do we fund? How do we fund a public housing revival? Very simply. 
by quarantining stamp duty on housing to provide public housing. In Victoria, they'll be collecting, this Victorian government will be collecting 6 to $7 billion every year from a tax which is levied on people who buy a home. Very simple. That's called stamp duty on real estate. Now, if that money was quarantined for the public housing sector, you could buy or build, you could spot purchase around the community and the state or build 100,000 public housing units. 100,000. And obviously there's a long lead time in building. You could spot purchase 100,000 homes around the state. And you could, you could, you know, house almost, you could about 150,000 people every year in public housing. Simple. Even if housing prices continue to rocket, even if you bought 25,000, spot purchased 25,000 homes with that uh, 6 to $7 billion, which you'd be paying a reasonable amount for that property, you could house 100,000 people every year. And within a decade, you could house over a million people in public housing. So what are the advantages of public housing? The first advantage is that it provides secure accommodation for people. Now, public housing isn't just about providing emergency accommodation or long-term accommodation for people who find themselves in the, in the most dire situation and are homeless. It's about providing a different way of housing people who will never be able to afford housing in the private marketplace. And that's why it was initially established. Now, we know, because of housing prices, some people, doesn't matter how hard they work, will never be able to afford to buy a home and will have to continue renting till the day they die. What's the problem with renting? Well, there are a number of problems. One is rental prices are set by the so-called market forces, manipulated market forces. Therefore, people on lower incomes can pay 30, 40, 50, 60% of their income to have a roof over their heads. Secondly, rental property, it's insecure housing. Now, if you're single, it may not matter that much, but if you've got a family, if you've got children, if you've got responsibilities, it's a huge issue. Because if you don't have security of tenure, what that means is that your children will have to move from school to school. They'll have to change their friendship groups. And this will have a profound and long-term impact on outcomes as far as those children are concerned. So social housing provides, one, housing security, and it's based on percentage of income, not market forces. Normally, 25% of income. So you could have three or four children you're responsible for, be on a basic wage, be housed in public housing, and only 25% of your income, not 40% or 50%, goes into paying rent. So who does paying rent 
benefit? Well, obviously, it benefits the investment class, that 8% of Australians who've got disposable income, who invest that disposable income in buying real estate which they rent, for which they get a tax deduction for, through negative gearing. That's right. What a wonderful world we live in in this country. The more homes you have, the more tax deductions you have. you got no home, you pay an extraordinary amount for rent. So having a strong public housing sector not only provides secure, affordable accommodation if you're concerned about, you know, putting everybody together in huge, you know, units around the place, you know, multi-storey developments. As I said before, spot purchasing, which was a program which was used in Victoria in the 1980s, and I'm familiar with Victoria, provided wonderful public housing for people around the state and in my particular profession, I visit people at home who've got profound physical disabilities and I can assure you that many of the people I have been visiting for years would not have been able to enjoy the life they enjoy and have their children educated in the same area if they did not live in public housing. And we've seen these people pushed out into the private sector, into the social housing sector. So, what are the benefits in having a strong public housing sector? Now, people talk about, you know, how horrible it is in China, okay? They say when the state owns everything, you know, when the state owns everything, it's terrible. Well, you have the same situation when the private sector owns everything because there is no competition. Yes, I'm using the C word. There is no competition between the privately owned sector and the state-owned sector. The stronger the public housing sector, the more competition with the privately owned housing sector. So the stronger the more public houses, less demand for privately owned dwellings, decrease in prices and rents at the lower end of the market as far as real estate is concerned. So a strong public housing sector leads to reduced rents and reduced prices at the lower end of the market because there are fewer people competing. And again, I'm using anarchist... I'm sorry, I'm using... My apologies. I'm using capitalist economic and rhetoric here, okay? So I'm, I'm using their system to provide a better system. Again, like a universal basic income, it's not about blood in the streets, revolution, changing things overnight executing, you know, firing squads, the guillotine. No. Simple economic reform based on political will for a change. Going back, nothing new, going back in time. And yes, we can go back in time and we do go back in time. So let's get back to it. Public house, strong public housing sector, decreased rents, decreased prices, the lower end of the market, as investors divest themselves of that property because they're not making any money. Maybe they want to waste their money on the stock market, which we'll talk about that later on, although everybody thinks it's going gangbusters. So a strong public housing sector provides secure accommodation at a reasonable price. It increases competition. It decreases rents. It decreases prices at the lower end of the market. Also, 
what it does, it acts as an economic stimulus. Now, everybody talks about a stimulus to the economy because most of economic activity, as we've seen during the COVID-19 crisis, is based around consumption. If you're spending 40 or 50% of your income to pay rent to the, pri- some private, to the private sector, it doesn't mean it means you haven't got much left for the rest of the economy, for the small business, for theatres, for entertainment, for takeaway, and the list goes cigarettes, and the list goes on and on. There's not much left. But if you only pay 25% of your income into public housing, that leaves 75% that goes back into the economy. And we know, as we've seen with the cash handouts during the COVID-19 crisis, that every time money goes to people at the lower end of the economic scale, they spend that money within a few weeks and they spend it on basic necessities. So think about it. Public housing, win-win situation. Private housing, masquerading as social housing, affordable housing, community housing, lose-lose situation. So why don't we have public housing? Why are governments around the country hell-bent, and especially the federal government, hell-bent on destroying public housing? Because it doesn't meet their their current ideological commitments. Because if you've got a strong public housing sector, then people will be demanding for a strong public education sector strong public health sector to decrease wasting lists and in- improve access to the public health system, the public education sector. Isn't it extraordinary that in this country we have private charities which raise money to ensure that Australian children have a reasonable education in the public education sector, which supposedly was set up to provide education to everybody, irrespective of income, when we see money funneled, channelled, you know, um, shovelled into the private education sector and the private health insurance industry. Think about it. As I said before, it's a matter of political will. And once again, public interest before corporate interests, another plank, policy plank, which was decided by the membership, is very simple. We support public housing, public education, public health, public infrastructure. So think about it. You can sit there in your television room and watch the Olympics. You can click your finger on your, on your mouse until you get RSI supporting this cause and that cause, you know, virtually. Or you can become part of a social, cultural, political movement that wants to ensure that the Commonwealth, that's the wealth which is held by all of us, is used for the common good. And I haven't even touched on the question of nationalising this country's resources and ensuring that although we may allow the private sector to develop this country's resources, that the majority of the profits, not just a little trickle, the majority of the profits flows into the Treasury to ensure we have the funds for a universal basic income, public housing, public education, public health. And if you think this is a pipe dream, 
this is not a pipe dream. We've seen these struggles over and over and over again. But unfortunately, because of the consumerist society we live in today, we now think that the only way to get the good things in life, well, the good consumer things in life, is to support holus bolus, an economic system that ensures that the gaps between those who have wealth and those who have nothing continues to widen. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano, and I'm hosting today's program. Now, I'm interested in a lot of things, and uh, I think what COVID-19, again, it's uh, highlighted a number of things, and uh, misinformation, disinformation seems to be the order of the day. I've been thinking about this for a while, and I'm thinking, why is it that in the 21st century, supposedly educated people who have access to some of the most, uh, have easy access to some of the most interesting research in the, on the planet, continue to be swayed by misinformation and disinformation? We've always had misinformation and disinformation in the world. But normally that misinformation, disinformation has been uh, set in train by the state apparatus or those who exercise power. But now we've seen the democratisation, you like that? The democratisation of misinformation and uh, disinformation. So why? What is it in the virtual world that allows misinformation and disinformation to become universal truth. What is it in the virtual worlds that turns fact into fiction? And you know what the common thread is? Monetarization. It's a fancy word for saying money. Because it works like this. You've got these large platforms that monopolise the system. Now, these large platforms, whether they're Facebook, whether they're this or whether they're that, TikTok, it doesn't matter whether they're this, they provide a free service, okay? You don't pay for the service. Now, if you provide a free service, you have no responsibility to the user. You have this long pro forma which they sign to, which nobody reads, right? So if you provide this free service... You are gathering information regarding individuals on a massive scale. We're talking about hundreds of millions, if not billions, of individuals. You can then put that information together and direct advertising, specific advertising to people. You've all known it. You've gone on the uh, internet looking for a dog and before you know it, you've got all these advertisements regarding dogs you can buy, okay? Dog groomer, dog groomers you can go to. I mean, that's the way it works. Your information is their lifeblood. Without your information, they're irrelevant. But in order to ensure that that information flow continues into the virtual world, we have the monetization of sites, so if your particular site has 100,000, 200,000, a million followers, if you've got that site, you make money. You're paid. So the, most, so the more extraordinary and outlandish the comments you make, 
the more people you attract to your site, the greater the possibility that that platform, whether it's Google, Facebook, doesn't matter what it is, YouTube, TikTok, doesn't matter what the platform is, it's the same business plan, pays you as an influencer. It ensures that you continue to pump out that disinformation and misinformation on a massive scale. And that's the issue. The monetization of misinformation and disinformation, that's the issue. It's the platform paying influences and not caring, not caring about the outcome. A little bit like Crown Casino. Years after everybody knew that Crown Casino was laundering illegal money on an industrial scale, years after activists had been campaigning for royal commissions into Crown Casino, the dirty laundry has finally you know, hit the headlines. But unfortunately, the very governments and political parties which profited it from them knowing about this industrial scale money laundering, continue to carry on business as usual. And it's the same in the virtual world. It doesn't matter the amount of misinformation that's pumped out as long as eyes are drawn to that particular site and those individuals' information then becomes the property of that particular platform, giving that particular platform greater access to individuals in terms of advertising crap, which advertisers pay good money in order to get your eyeballs on their crap, right? This disease, and it is a disease, it's a, it's a postmodern disease, it's a 21st century disease, will continue to eat us alive. So the first thing I think we should be doing is not monetizing influences, and you'll find that very soon their so-called followers will fall away because the very platforms which encourage people to look at these sites will disintegrate. That's the least that can be done. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia by the Community Radio Network. My name is Joseph Descar. I'm hosting today's Program As I said before, if you're interested in public interest before corporate interest, you can go to pibc.net. You can leave a message on 0439 395 489 or you can write to me at Post Office Box 20, Parkville 3052. Now, I've had some disgruntled listeners ring me, which is always nice, and I may have made an error. I'll say may have made. Now, I'm going to say something and see if you can put it together. Aerial ping-pong, football, Adam Goods, A Tale of Two Cities. I'll repeat it again. Aerial ping-pong, football, Adam Goods, A Tale of Two Cities. Now, most, most of you will remember the unsatisfactory saga regarding Adam Goods. Goods. You know, a uh, First Nations Indigenous uh, footballer who was basically forced to retire because of the reaction from the crowds. I mean, there are a number of television series and a film that's been made about it. And uh, this particular people are a little bit upset that I think in a previous episode a number of months ago that I kind of intimated that the club didn't assist Mr Goods. 
Well, I'm not in the habit of making apologies to clubs or institutions, and I never will. But if somehow supporters of this particular football club felt that I kind of denigrated them for not supporting Mr Goods while the the majority of the members did support Mr Goods, well, I withdraw those comments. That's the key, withdraw those comments. But I'd like to make a, a number of points about what happened because I want to kind of intertwine them with what's happened in the last few months on the planet. Now, in football, which is called soccer in Australia, but called football in the rest of the world, and in aerial ping pong, which is called Australian rules, there's been different responses. And we haven't seen we haven't seen these responses in Australia, and that's what concerns me regarding the Adams Good saga. In soccer at the professional level, especially the higher levels, if players in your team are racially taunted by the opposition spectators, it's not unusual for teams to walk off the field and refuse to play. Now, in the end, good saga, it's really a black, well, it's a terrible, terrible blot on this country. And I'll tell you why. First of all, we didn't see the Prime Minister or major political figures come out in support of Mr Goods. They were concerned about the voters, obviously, in the Crown. Now, while a few weeks ago we saw Boris Johnston, Johnson, the British Prime Minister, come out publicly just a few days after people were racially denigrating the three soccer players who missed their penalty shots in the uh, European uh, League as far as uh, the Football League was concerned. They came out really hard, really quickly. The government and major political and cultural figures came out really hard, really quickly to drown the racists. Did we see this during the Adams Good saga? Did we see the Swans, which was the club responsible, walk off the field like their football counterparts in Europe? when Mr Goods was racially vilified week after week after week after week? No. Did we see the AFL step in? No. Obviously, we saw the coaching staff from the Swans step in and we saw many of their supporters stop it, uh, come in to assist. But as far as the Australian Football League was concerned, it was not their business. As far as politicians was concerned, it was not their business. As far as important figures in the society was concerned, it was not their business. And this vilification went on week after week after week after week, driving Mr Goods from the football field. And a few months ago when he was offered the ultimate accolade, which is being inducted into the AFL Hall of Fame, he refused. And why do you think he refused? Because of the lack of support in the community. So my advice, and I'm you know, famous for unsolicited advice, it's my specialty, my advice is that if you're, you have members in your team, it doesn't matter whether you're an amateur team, 6th Division, 10th Division, 15th Division, it doesn't matter what age group, 
if you're in a professional team and people in that team are being racially vilified, especially on a regular basis for no other reason but the colour of their skin or what they wear or their religious beliefs, well, then walk off and walk off that field of play and force the authorities who administrate, administer that sport to deal with the situation. Think about it. You're listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. This program is streaming live on 3cr.org.au. The program is podcast. It may take a day or two to podcast it, but it will be up hopefully within the next 48 hours for you to listen again. Let's move on. Let's move on. Fracking dreaming. You like that? Fracking dreaming. Corporate welfare bonanza. Now, we all hear about the bloody leaners, you know, all those welfare, in inverted comma, bludgers out there, all right? But how about the corporate bludgers out there? Unfortunately, the Northern Territory people voted in uh, representatives that uh, supported fracking in the Northern Territory, and obviously the Territory being part of federal government responsibility had a little bit of pressure placed on it by the federal government to allow the fracking industry to run riot in the Northern Territory. Well, it gets better than that. While Aboriginal people, whose land is now about to be fracked for a minuscule royalty, living third world conditions, the federal government has just given a $50 million gift to the very companies that are doing the fracking exploration. Now, we're told this is a $39 billion industry, that because the federal government refuses to accept that there is a climate emergency and thinks that the way out of a climate emergency is through a a gas-driven revival, we are seeing federal government money going to corporate leaners in order to frack land in the Northern Territory. Now, I have not made this up. You would think I've made this up. Obviously, it's not front-page news. We've got the Olympics on, haven't we? It's not front-page news. But it is a corporate welfare bonanza. But we see this in all areas of natural resources extraction, where your money, whether it's a fuel subsidy, whether it's a direct gift to the mining sector, which makes extraordinary profits from exploiting land which theoretically belongs to all of us, we see them giving money, hand over fists, money. If they haven't got enough money to cover their expenses as far as fracking exploration is concerned, well, they shouldn't be in the business of fracking, should they? Why should we give, as a people, as a population, as taxpayers, why should we give handouts to corporations which are poised to make billions of dollars profit by exploiting natural resources sitting directly on Aboriginal land without without paying decent royalties to people? Think about it. 
and you tell me there's no corporate welfare. We've got franking credits, corporate welfare. Okay, look, another few words. Square afterpay franking credits. Euphoria. You pay, they laugh at you. All right, now we've seen what they term as the greatest takeover in Australian history. We've seen Square, which is basically a, uh, you know, an, it's an organisation in the United States which dominates the so-called afterpay industry, which means, you know, in the old days you'd go down to your local shop and you'd like something. You know, you liked that. It was very nice. You liked it. You'd say, oh, can I lay by that, please, sir? Or miss, a little kitty, you know, I like that, you know, that dragon over there. Can I lay by it, please? And they grab the little thing and you take it down to the counter and they put it in the back room and you'd pay it off over the next three months and, you know, it'd be yours and you'd be really, really excited. Well, we've got a cost concept now which th- thinks that it can compete with cash and credit card called Afterpay, which I don't know if all our listeners are familiar with. Well, it's very simple. You like those shoes, $278 for one shoe, 1000 for two. Well, you take them to the, take them to the count and you say, after pay. And the company makes money in two ways. It makes money uh, if you forfeit, if you're not able to actually meet your payments, but it also makes money by charging the shop you know, money. Now, this is an inflationary concept because obviously most shops are going to try to recover their loss to afterpay by increasing prices, and that's why we may have seen an increase in inflation recently. So it has a negative effect on the economy. So that's that's the, that's the model. You like something, you go. The shop accepts afterpay, which means they get paid by afterpay. But obviously Afterpay takes a percentage, 10, 20, whatever it is they've agreed with the shop. You get your shit and then you pay it off. And if you don't pay it off, you pay penalty fees, okay? But guess what? You're paying for it through franking credits. That's right. Because the Afterpay deal was an interesting deal. Because it wasn't a cash deal. It wasn't a $39 billion cash deal. It was a share-for-share deal. What that means is that your shares in Afterpay, if you had Afterpay shares, were incorporated into the shares of Square. And then if you sell them and make a buck, you get franking credits. You make, you know, courtesy of me and you, the taxpayer. What a wonderful system. Now, I have a policy which any of you can follow. And I don't think it means that you're gonna, it's going to make your life hard. I have a policy. I don't deal with Amazon. I don't deal with any Uber outfit. I don't deal with Afterpay. I don't deal with any of the new disruptors. I refuse to give my money to these disruptors who are out there, who minimise profits from struggling businesses, especially small businesses, and make their money by exploiting loopholes in legislation and by exploiting people's labour 
by forcing them to be so-called individual contractors when they're basically little more than employees. I don't support the system. If it means I've got to go to a takeaway shop to get takeaway, I will go to that takeaway shop to get takeaway. If it means that I need to ring up a hotel or a motel to make a booking for a holiday directly, I will make that call directly. And in the majority of cases, I will receive, that's right, I will receive a 10% discount. Because these organisations prefer to deal with the customer directly than these disruptors. So we all have an individual responsibility. Do you want to, to keep the virtual gangster's fingers out of your pockets and your wallet, or do you want to feed that frenzy? Every time you use a Uber service, every time you use an afterpay service, every time you use what you think is a more efficient way of you running your life every time you buy from Amazon or any other of these organisations, you are supporting the system. You are what lubricates the system. So do what I do and ignore the bastards and get on with your life and keep their little sticky fingers out of your pockets and out of your, out of your wallets. You've been listening to The Anarchist World this week, broadcast across Australia via the Community Radio Network. My name's Joseph Toscano. Websites to go to, anarchistmedia.org, pipsy.net. Websites, Joseph Toscano, public interest... Uh, sorry, Facebook pages. I've got so many shit I forget. Joseph Toscano, Facebook pages, uh, public interest before corporate interest, YouTube, public interest before corporate interest, and the list goes on and on. Ultimately, change comes when people take action. Don't be a misguided, misinformationalist. Do you like that? I've just made that up. Be your own person. Change the world. Look after yourself. And remember, ultimately, we are the people we've been waiting for. That's right. We are the people we've been waiting for. No secular leader, no religious leader, no government no organisation out there, especially the uh, virtual disruptors, is going to change anything. They just want more of the same. They want to change things by removing everything that we have won over generations. Thank you for listening to The Anarchist World this week. Listen in next week to The Anarchist World this week via the Community Radio Network. This program is podcast. Go to 3CR. Dot org dot au. That's right, 3cr.org.au. Listen in next week to the Anarchist World this week on your local community radio station, courtesy of the Community Radio Network. Evil minds that plot destruction Sorcerer of death construction an analysis you'll never hear anywhere else. Anarchist World This Week, Australia's Sacred Cow Slaughterhouse. 10am every Wednesday. Listen to the Anarchist World This Week for an up-to-date analysis of local, national and international events. Poisoning their brainwashed minds. Oh, larger.
So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty. Not the one you see in Victoria, not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality and a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.